Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. And Democratic Senator... Scott Sifton, 1st Senate District. The 1st Senate District. Well, He's, he's number one. <laughs> number yeah. one. The 1st Senate District, and this is your first year in the Senate. That's right. That's right. Served uh, one term in the House before that and uh, uh, nine years on the school board in Afton. Tell us a little bit about it other than just it being number one. Sure. Well, <laughs> it's uh, South St. Louis County and part of the inner suburban ring, and it, it takes in uh, everything in South County east of I-55, uh, between I-55 and the Mississippi River. Uh, once you get up to Lindbergh, um, loosely Lindbergh becomes the boundary. Now, there are parts that are either uh, west uh, of Lindbergh and Kirkwood that are in. There are parts that are north of Lindbergh in South County that are out. But basically, Lindbergh is my southern and then western boundary going uh, through uh, 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 Crestwood and into Kirkwood, a little bit of Sunset Hills. Um, and then the, the, the northern uh, front is uh, – uh, the city of Rock Hill, uh, the southern half of Brentwood, uh, almost all of Maplewood, but it also takes in Webster Groves, Afton, most of Afton, uh, Lime, um, and uh, what is uh, the unincorporated area referred to as Concord. So nine school districts and 182,000 people. So you, you, you kind of alluded to before, you only served one term in the House before you engaged in what I would consider one of the biggest state Senate races of last year. It was really fun covering that race, by the way, because it was an example. And I've said this to you privately, but I'll say it to all the world. <laughs> the I whole world's it, listening I right found now. it to be a, a race between two excellent candidates who campaigned well, who had strong opinions, you and former Senator Jim Lemke of LeMay. Um, tell me a little bit about what that, that campaign was like and, you know, why you think it came out ahead. Well, it was extremely hard work as— most campaigns are, but as you allude to, uh, my opponent, a um, tremendously hardworking candidate uh, who had himself served uh, six years in the House and four years in the Senate, um, had won, I think, his previous four elections, uh, all of them by less than uh, 1% of the vote. So he was no stranger to close calls. And we knew going into the campaign that to, to have a chance to win, we were going to have to give it our absolutely best effort because. Uh, because uh, I had so much respect for my opponent's work ethic. Um, so it was uh, in a summer that was much hotter than this one, uh, night in, night out, uh, knocking on doors, um, working hard to uh, uh, build the resources we needed to communicate our message uh, to the electorate. But um, at the end of the day, I think uh, voters in the district wanted to see um, uh, wanted to see a greater emphasis placed on moving forward on economic development and tax credit reform legislation rather than insisting on the perfect package before letting anything happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, lobbyist gifts were obviously an issue in the campaign as well. That said, I don't want to relitigate all that other than to say, um, you know, I have nothing but the greatest respect for my opponent and the effort that he put in and grateful uh, to the voters of the 1st District for the opportunity to serve. Well, you were notable in that your victory was virtually the only Democratic legislative victory in the state where you knocked off a Republican incumbent. At least in the Senate, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and this was in 2012 when most of the Democrats, although in some case it was narrow, they did win statewide all but one office. 
You know, what we've seen uh, unfold in Missouri really over the last 20 years, and part of it's just how, uh, on the legislative map, how closely Democrats uh, and Republicans live to one another. Um, you know, the phenomenon we've seen unfold is that Democrats have won the better part of 75 percent of the statewide races in the last 15 years, while at the same time the legislature has flipped from nearly two-thirds Democratic to now precisely two-thirds Republican. And uh, a, a lot of that is um, – um, the you know it's political geography of legislative districts redistricting. Do you think the di- districting helped the Republicans a lot? You know, in the Senate, certainly not. I mean, the new map uh, basically gave the Democrats a new seat, and certainly in the case of the first Senate district, I'd, I'd have to acknowledge that it was a different district than the one that um, elected my predecessor four years previous. Um, without question, that um, that's, that's always a factor. That's the reason people pay attention to how the lines are drawn. Uh, in the House, um, I think it's fair to say that, um, at least in my view, having uh, worked fairly closely on House redistricting when I uh, served in that chamber, um, that uh, there are, you know, there, there's a range of different map scenarios. I think the map that we got is one that is relatively favorable to Republicans. I would also say that even the, the most favorable map uh, to Democrats, uh, just because of how densely Democratic districts are packed in, um, makes it very tough um, for uh, for us to uh, see a Democratic majority in the House anytime soon. I mean, so you think it could be a long, long... I mean, there's some people who think it could be, well, decades before the Democrats could get control of either chamber in Missouri. Uh, on the current maps, the the there is a clearer path in the Senate than in the House. Um, but as it stands now, we have... Uh, 10 seats in the Senate, and frankly, we're going to have to work very hard in 2014 just to stay at that level. Yeah, you could potentially lose seats, hypothetically. Yes. So, But that gets us to, I guess, the question we're all dying to talk about this veto <laughs> session. Yes. We're only a few weeks away now. Yes, and, um, yes. For I, junkies like ourselves. There's been a lot of focus on what's going to happen in the House because 253, this tax cut bill that we've talked about incessantly, starts in the House. As we should be. As, as, it, as it should be. Um, there's an open question about whether that bill or any other bill from the House, whether it be the quote-unquote gun nullification bill or any other bill that came out of there is going to make it to the Senate. I think we, what we wanted to talk about with you is as a member of a 10-person strong Democratic caucus, that if you band together and filibuster for a long time, you could hypothetically stop things. Generally, what what is kind of your thoughts on how the Democrats will – what will, what they'll do – in, in September 11th when some of these bills come and, over. And, and particularly in the Senate, since, I mean, most of the major bills are going to be starting in the House first. You know, it, 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 I think that largely remains to be seen. A lot is going to depend on what comes out of the House, if anything. And I, I say this every year. There is a very intense uh, set of maneuvering that goes, uh, you know, goes on about what veto session will or will not uh, be comprised of. And you know, my first year in the House, we called zero bills up for override. My second year, we called up one ultimately in the House, uh, and there was only one override um, that came out of the Senate. And I, I didn't realize this um, until recently. Uh, it's apparently been a long, long time since the Senate has taken up a House bill for veto override. Um, now, that said, there's plenty of reason to think that could happen this year. Um, a lot's going to depend on what comes out of the House. Uh, I, I will say that um, you know, initially the obvious override candidate uh, was 253, the tax bill that the governor's uh, been talking about all summer long. Uh, we all know that, that that's going to uh, uh, be one that may very well um, 
be brought up for a vote in the House. If it comes out of the House, then we'll see what happens in the Senate. Uh, the gun bill that you mentioned, uh, uh, Jason, uh, there's been talk uh, of late. Uh, I think the Speaker mentioned uh, the Doe Run bill uh, as another possibility. And actually, in the last few days, the list seems to be getting a little bit longer. I've noticed that. You know, yeah. talked about yeah. the sex offender bill, and Chris and I were at the news conference today that the governor had where uh, the governor really – Actually, I haven't seen him that passionate on something except maybe 253. He really yeah. unloaded. He was. And, and he was really, uh, this is th- 301 is the sex offender bill, which would in effect um, remove uh, people under the age of 18 who are on the sex offender list from the rolls if that's the only, if, if they just have the one-off, that and, one sex offense. The problem, and, as he says, is because it doesn't include other crimes. So he had big pictures of people who were on the sex offender rolls who actually had been convicted of murder and other things that he said would be removed from the rolls under the bill. And he estimates that it would be 870 individuals who would be removed from the rolls. Yeah, and he was really whipped up about it. So I was curious, I mean, which is stunning, and he really went after the speaker on it, saying that the speaker has been cavalier in some of his language. Uh, Is that some stuff that's been rather surprising the last few days, or what have you been hearing? You mentioned that... There's been some communications within the Senate lately. Uh, well, actually, the communications in the Senate have been about a separate bill, which pertains to uninsured motorists. But um, And the other Senate communication that we've received is just an indication from the, the floor leader that, um, um, you know, we do have time set for uh, Thursday and Friday of the week of veto session. Um, you know, if nothing's taken up, we'll be there uh, Wednesday uh, and in and out uh, relatively quickly, most likely, depending on what comes out of the House and how long it takes them. Uh, but the, spe- uh, the, the the majority floor leader on the Senate has indicated, eh, you know, we'll, we'll get started at 10 o'clock on, on Thursday and Friday if, if, if we're still here, which which we could be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as to the, uh, the sex offender bill, uh, you know, I would anticipate in light of some of what the governor has raised that um, folks may take a long, hard look as to whether this is something that would be appropriate to bring up for an override uh, or instead perhaps take into account the concerns the governor has raised and revisit the issue again in January. Um, I think that, um, you know, I I think that uh, the governor has made some important points that need to be weighed very carefully. Um, certainly on an override question um, and or in the legislative process regardless. On the on the gun bill, which we've been talking about, are you surprised there seems to be a better chance as of now of that getting overridden than, say, the tax cut bill? I've, I've noticed by reading, you know, a lot of accounts that a lot of Republicans want to override it, some Democrats want to override it, even though there's no real evidence, for example, that this is a quote-unquote gun lobby pushed bill. It seems like people are kind of falling over themselves to to override this. Why do you think that is in many ways? You know, um, fr- fr- from, a, from a certain standpoint, um, you know, d- depending on what happens with the tax bill um, and some of these other bills, there is, as, as we saw two years ago, always the possibility at the, at the end of the day, there may not be the votes there to override much of anything. And I think the nature of the gun bill is such that it's one that given the fact that in many ways gun policy is a bipartisan issue mm-hmm. in this state or, or really more a nonpartisan issue in the state and perhaps, if anything, a regional issue, uh, that might be the one that there are most likely to be the votes to override on, um, you know, regardless of the fact that I, th- I think 
many have acknowledged, and I and the Post, I think, wrote up uh, one of our state representatives on it, many have acknowledged that it's unconstitutional right. uh, yeah, we on pro- its face. Yeah, we probably should explain to our listeners that uh, this bill would, uh, in effect, bar enforcement of all federal gun laws, including the uh, 1934 uh, ban on uh, machine guns. And, uh, and it would also prohibit publishing names of gun owners. Of gun owners. And, and the governor is claiming that the way it's worded, that anybody, even a little feature of a kid who just got his first uh, uh, gun and shot a deer, could. Uh, and it also features a, non- a number of other things. It yes. lists concealed yeah, right. and carry to, from 21 to 19, has Correct. something with open carry, it has something with gun buyback programs. And there's a big question of whether all that stuff will survive if parts are declared unconstitutional. It, it also has language quite literally putting guns in the hands of teachers. And I think the governor, I mean, true to his word in vetoing the bill, was, was clear early after the uh, Sandy Hook uh, incident uh, tragedy uh, in December uh, that, um, you know, putting guns in teachers' hands was not something he supported. Uh, and I, I don't think, frankly, I, I don't think the people in the 1st Senate District support it, and I don't think the people in Missouri support it either. So I, you know, no secret here, I voted against the bill the first time around. It's my intent to vote to sustain the governor's veto if it gets that far. What sort of feedback have you been getting from people in your district, like regarding 253, which, you know, cuts taxes but also eliminates the exemption on uh, prescription drugs, uh, sales tax on prescription drugs, so they would be paying sales taxes on that and on textbooks. You were at the governor's event a week ago at the drugstore in Kirkwood. Uh, right. And I, 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 I was, you, Were you at the bank, too? I was at Commerce yeah. Bank as well. Um, you, you <laughs> yeah. know, so fiscal conservatives there should be— There have been a cons- lot of them. <laughs> yeah, fiscal conservatives should be concerned about 253 because of what it means for um, the state's uh, credit rating potentially. Uh, it could increase borrowing costs at a time when we're contemplating a billion-dollar road ballot question and and a billion dollar state building bond issue uh we're talking about uh a measure that would possibly increase our borrowing costs for both of those and i I think that that would be a mistake um it's a terrible bill for seniors in several respects um you know and, and my district has a lot of folks who are living on a fixed income very modestly um, who can barely afford prescription drugs as it stands now and um, who would be hit very hard by this bill. And, and the other thing that many of them are having a hard time covering is uh, their local school property tax bill. The, 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 the average school district in my legislative district uh, receives between 85 and 90 percent of its uh, uh, funding from local property taxpayers rather than through the state foundation formula. Um, so the, the the property tax burden, especially on seniors living on fixed incomes in my district is disproportionately great compared to many other places in the state. And this bill this bill is bad for local property taxpayers because what it's going to do, our, our state education formula is already underfunded by more than a half billion dollars. Um, by limiting state income growth over the next 10 years to basically 1%, uh, and I can explain more about that in a minute, um, it is inevitable that that um, local school boards are going to turn to local property taxpayers to continue to cover just the inflationary costs uh, I- increases in providing uh, education, which is yeah, a pretty hot topic um, in 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 uh, certainly in my district uh, in the St. Louis region these days, and and I think statewide uh, with you know the accreditation issues that we're seeing a number of districts have, and and all, all the you know. Gets into the transfer issue, but long story short, um, two fifty three is going to um, substantially curtail the state's ability to uh, support 
K-12 and higher education, and that's bad for local property taxpayers and for parents of college students and, and for college students. Now, one of the other big stories from this summer has been the school transfer situation where you have students coming from unaccredited school districts going to accredited ones paid for by the unaccredited districts. What One of the big complaints about this <clears throat> about this 20-year-old law is that it doesn't set very many guidelines and it doesn't give a lot of guidance. What do you see the legislature doing next year in terms of the transfer situation? I see the legislature focusing very intently on the issue, not from the first day of session, but from the first day of pre-filing and, and actually before. Uh, conversations have been happening really ever since the court decision, certainly uh, in the last uh, uh, few weeks as um, developments have unfolded. Um, folks are talking. Um, uh, you know, the patient is going to be on the table um, from from the opening <laughs> gavel uh, gavel in uh, in in January. Uh, what sort is... of surgery are we talking <laughs> about? <laughs> right, because you well, put you put forth some specific ideas. Since Melville yes. is one of the, yes. I guess Riverview Gardens people are going to Melville. That's, that's yeah, correct. and that's, saying, in, and that's which is in your district. district. Yeah. So. Uh, we'll, Yes. Yeah, and the, the number actually uh, between uh, Melville and Kirkwood, which I also represent, between the two districts, it happens to be an even 400 transfers. The last number we heard from uh, Melville was 216, and in Kirkwood, the number as of the first day of school yesterday was 184. Yeah. Uh, the, so yes, I, I have called for um, having somebody besides the transferring district decide where transportation dollars uh, are, are provided for. And, and I say that arguably the statute doesn't even allow the transferring district any discretion. Arguably, under the statute, they have to pay the cost of transportation to every district. Now, that's not right. what's happening. That's not what Desi's guidelines call for. There's an argument to be made that that's a loss. We've got to address that. But I just don't think the transferring district is in the best position to make that determination. I think that should be done at a regional or even statewide level. And, and you know, and by the way, um, you know, we could see additional unaccredited districts in the St. Louis region in the yes, years ahead. We, we already have the city of Kansas City's uh, schools unaccredited and some outstate districts that are on the watch list. So this is an issue that is going to be um, looming larger, not smaller, um, in the months and years ahead. Um, you know, there's some concern in the case of Normandy whether they'll even be financially solvent by the time the legislature convenes in January. Um, Beyond that, um, the law needs to have some kind of recognition for the capacity of receiving districts. I mean, I, I and this is a touch melodramatic, and it, it's sort of a, a hypothetical, but you know, I, I served on a school board of a twenty five hundred student district that happens to be adjacent to two other districts that are similarly sized, and across the river to pair, we have a district with maybe fifty five thousand school aged children, and. I don't think you'd ever see the day when, you know, God forbid if the uh, city schools were to lose their accreditation again, that 55,000 students would say we're all coming to this particular 2,500 student district. But under the current law, there's nothing to prevent yeah, that. Yeah, I'm telling you. like, And, I, and I, they're only provisionally accredited I, right now. I live in southwest St. Louis City in St. Louis Hills, which is a fairly middle-class affluent area. And as soon as that district becomes unaccredited, you're going to see people like those as well as low-income people going to Clayton going to Afton, going to any nearby places, and they will transfer out of there, and I think it will be make this situation look like a picnic in and, many respects. And I, I think in that regard, we have to craft the legislative solution in mind that what we're not talking about, you know, we're not just talking about two districts, we're ta plus Kansas City. We're talking about something that, you know, with, with increasing uh, accountability in K-12 education, our state is something that, you know, will, <laughs> will happen to districts that aren't getting the job done for every one of their kids. And, and you know, to your point, Jason, the, the reality is um, 
children everywhere deserve a quality education regardless of the uh, you know of what um, you know the, the the local resources are or what the local board does or what the local administration does or, or what's happening in the classroom with professional development we need to get the job done this this region is not going to be able to compete in the 21st century if we cannot provide a quality education to all of our students and we have got uh, we have got to get that done so we need to address transportation we need to address um, capacity we also need to address the the financial solvency or lack thereof the transferring districts um, you know what what I have been struck by in discussing this issue with constituents is uh, the one theme that ha- has been constantly recurring is what can we do here in South St. Louis County or as a matter of policy in Jefferson City to get you know the Normandies and the Riverviews back to where they need to be um, in, in providing a quality education apart from keeping them financially solvent if that's in the cards. Um, what do we need to do to provide a good education in those buildings? Because um, 75% of the students in those districts are still there. And, and um, you know, we, we need answers. DESE has uh, begun work on that. They've made some steps even just in the last day or two. We got an email this morning um, about uh, some steps that they're taking pursuant to one bill that the legislature already has passed, Senate Bill 125, that uh, allows DESE to intervene sooner rather than later in unaccredited districts. So Desi's going to be working on this. The legislature's going to be working on this. I would hope that between the two we can get the job done and not continue to have the judiciary in the driver's seat on this by default because the other two branches of government aren't getting their job done. Do you think this might get intertwined in this back and forth between the quote-unquote educational establishment, as they're derisively called, and reformers, as they're more you know sunnily called, that want better access to private schools or tuition tax credits or, or any of those things. teacher tenure. Or stuff like that. That seems to be why the quote-unquote Turner fix didn't make it last time. It got intertwined in that. Do you see that happening again next year? You know, I think the history of this issue, you know, I think the re- real reason Turner uh, didn't at least come to a vote was because the, the courts told us the law was unconstitutional at the time. And I think that that unfortunately, rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly killed the momentum toward getting it done. I, I didn't have the power to bring it to a vote in the House, uh, but it, it, it didn't get brought to a vote. It should have. Uh, but the, the court decision being timed about, what, 10 days out from the end of session in 2012, I can tell you, just killed the momentum to get that done. And it was unfortunate because we didn't get uh, the second ruling until after it was too late for the legislature to do anything in 2013. I mean, we spent the entire 2013 session thinking the law was unconstitutional. But um, to your question, uh, Jason, I think the history of this issue has been that, unfortunately, there has been some overreaching on both sides. I think folks that uh, want to see change have been asking for too much. I think people that want to see the status quo and, and, and solve this all with a blank check um, have been um, have been too stubborn. Uh, and, and I think the truth lies somewhere in between. And, and you know, in one year in the Missouri Senate, I have learned that um, in, in some ways it's not the institution a lot of people might expect it to be. You know, we talk about 34 islands in the Senate. We talk about the independence of senators. And I can tell you, um, certainly the St. Louis Regional Delegation on both sides of the aisle is determined to get something moving and get something done on this. Uh, And I don't think you're going to see ideologues on either side of the issue. I think you're going to see people working across the aisle, rolling up their sleeves, trying to come up at what the best um, policy is for transferring districts, for receiving districts, and and for districts that might be performing at a high level now but might have a building that, that has a problem, which right now, you know, the, the, the accreditation 
runs district wide. If you you know if you fail as a district because of three schools out of twenty, you fail as a district. On the other hand, if you're accredited as a district, despite having three out of twenty schools be be uh, underperforming, you, you you have you know really no accountability to try to to force improvements in the buildings that are failing. So one of the other issues that we're looking very closely at is is whether we ought to uh, take up accreditation on a building by building level rather than district by district. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the issues that's on the table. But I, I you know. I think most of us are of the view that, um, you know, this is not the time for us to be ideological. This is the time for us to be pragmatic and to solve the challenge that is before us. Now, we're going to enter new ground in political <laughs> speaking because always we've talked Whoa. about tax cuts and state-level bills with state-level people. But I don't know pers- where we're going with this. <laughs> the person sitting <laughs> next to me has gotten involved in a county-level issue, which is my – journalistic territory, so to speak, in that he has spoken out in this situation in Oakville, which is in his Senate district, involving a low-income senior housing development there. Just to sum up for the readers that don't know about it, a company out of Columbus, Ohio, last year got permission to build a uh, three-story low-income senior housing facility there. Uh, Right around the time this year, I think it was in May, there started to be a lot of public backlash in Oakville against that because they felt they did not have proper notification when this situation was going through. And the reason why I am prefacing this is because uh, Senator Sifton to my left is one of the people who has spoken out, I guess, with some of the residents who have been upset about this, along with Representative Marsha Hafner of Oakville, a Republican, and um, a, a lot of other people. So... Having said that verbose introduction, <laughs> why did you decide to get involved in this, and um, what do you see the issues at play that people are so mad about? You know, in visiting with constituents in Oakville, it became apparent to me very early on that this was in no way uh, some kind of partisan uh, issue. This was a local land use issue that was of critical importance to a great many. And when I say a great many, I'm talking about thousands of people that I represent. And I uh, even still, I mean, I, there are people that I talk with about different issues at different times. I mean, just the other day, I, I talked to, was talking to somebody about who's concerned about telecommunications policy who happens to live just off of Telegraph Road uh, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, was asking me what the prospects were going forward. I mean, folks are concerned about this for, for several different reasons. The, the biggest one is just local land use. And, and bear in mind, you know, for the folks in Oakville, their land use decisions are made in Clayton. Yes, and, because and it's unincorporated and effectively the county council is their city council. Correct. It's about 40 minutes to drive from the, the site of this uh, uh, development to the building, the, 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 the county uh, government building where the issue was decided. And um, that can be frustrating for folks, especially when the development in question um, is a three-story development in a, in a in, and will basically be the, the tallest non-industrial use in the 63129 zip code. Oakville, uh, to this point, has always been um, a development of no more than two stories. Uh, moreover, um, you know, this is a fairly intense use on a relatively small lot. Um, there's concern about the sufficiency of parking. Um, the the development in question is also adjacent to a daycare 
uh, in fact, shares a fence. The, the dumpster is on the other side of the fence line from the playground. I mean, it, they're right on top of each other. And so there were issues of proximity to the daycare and a school and a monastery uh, of cloistered nuns <laughs> who came forward publicly, cloistered nuns testifying publicly. Um, it was a sight to see. Yeah. It, he's not making this up. This it, really happened. And, and all I would say, you know, I, I've got a decision rule about crime and, and law enforcement legislation that I might introduce. If there's any chance that somebody wearing a badge is going to testify against my bill, it's not going to get filed because I, I'm not looking to do anything to make law enforcement's job harder for me. I, I would also say respectfully to developers, look, if you have nuns testifying against you at a zoning hearing, you've done something wrong, and the outreach here was lacking. And, you know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on how all this happened, but long story short, um, the Oakville community was absolutely united on this issue, and I wanted to stand next to a Republican state representative and a Democratic council, county council member, one, in asking that we at least get these folks a hearing since um, clearly they didn't know this was going on the first time around, and, and two, when the time came for the hearing, to make it clear this is not a partisan issue. This is representing the Oakville community, and as their state senator, that's my job. Um, I, you know, what am I there for if I'm not going to speak for the people? And there are two sides to every issue. There were some concerns about liability to the county in the event the zoning determination were to be changed, and that's something the uh, commission took into account. Um, they voted against changing the zoning, and it's my understanding that the county council doesn't seem to have much appetite to take the issue any further. So, in other words, it will get built. Well, it, as it stands now, it's been being built. I mean, one of the frustrations with this was um, at the time of the first county council meeting where the issue was raised, the foundation had already been poured. Yeah, it's, um, it's being built right now. So continue. So, you know, in that regard, it's frustrating. And, 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 you know, I still stand where I stand on the issue, assuming the project goes forward from this point. All I will say is thousands of people who felt let down by local government um, got to ask for a hearing and got to be heard. And even though none of them are happy with the outcome, uh, ultimately, um, at least at least they had their elected representatives standing up on their behalf and getting them what process they could. I don't. I'm not satisfied with that. It's not the outcome that I hoped for. Um, but uh, as compared to county government, simply um, you know refusing to even hear these people right. uh, who are are very concerned about something they think is inappropriate for their community, um, we at least accomplished that. Okay. I, I guess we'll just touch on this very briefly right. because we said we would about ethics because you, that was a major issue in your campaign. You have proposed banning all lobbyist gifts. You've spoken before about how you're not pleased that Missouri has no limits on gifts, on campaign contributions. There was a, a third thing. Was it travel or something like that? That goes in with lobbyist gifts. Yeah. Right. right. Well, travel. there's also the whole thing about intercommittee transfers of money. So um, – Really, really, we wanted to touch on this. What do you, where do you see that issue going? I know Senator Lamping was on our show and says he wants to focus on that next next session, which may be his last session. But where do you see that issue going next year? You know, Senator Lamping had a bill this year that made it to the floor for about forty five minutes before it was pulled, <laughs> and 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 not not to be, um, you know, not to be critical here, but um, it's great to talk about uh, ending the revolving door between legislators and lobbyists, but. You know, when, when Democratic amendments to um, reinstate campaign donation limits were brought to the floor and roll called with my lobbyist gift ban waiting in the wings, and that's why the bill gets pulled from the floor, 
Um, I, I was just very disappointed um, that we did not get to have a full debate of the merits of all of these proposals. Uh, you know, if folks want to make the case for accepting lobbyist gifts, uh, you know, let them put their name on the record. I just think it. I, I just think it looks terrible. And people can give their justifications for accepting lobbyist gifts, uh, and, and and if they think that that's um, that that's what's called for. Uh, I just think when what's the number? I mean. Was it three quarters of a million? It was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars just for the session. Yeah, and, and that's, that's for gone, the first five months up, out of the year. It's it's gone up to about eight hundred thousand. And we wonder why people are cynical about their government when they see all of that going on. And uh, you know, I, I just think there's absolutely no reason it should be uh, the case, especially during session when, by the way, taxpayers are giving us a hundred dollars a day for meals and lodging in a town where rent is two hundred and fifty dollars a month. Um, if you can't, <laughs> if you can't afford to feed yourself three times a day on a hundred taxpayer dollars, um, you probably don't need to be trying to figure out a twenty-three billion dollar budget. Uh, I just—it's an issue of credibility of the legislature, and um, there's just no reason why the institution should continue to allow itself to um, to um, be basically tarnished in this way. I mean, there's just no reason for it to be. Are, are you hopeful at all that next session? There will be some serious work done on it. I would hope so. Uh, I know that there's talk of an initiative petition, at least on donation limits, right. uh, that may include some other ethics reforms. Um, the unfortunate history of this has been that, you know, we've seen some comprehensive ethics uh, legislation make it to the finish line, only to be struck down by the courts in a way that, respectfully, might have been foreseeable from the people pushing it in the first place. And um, that's very unfortunate. Uh, but I, I certainly will work with any of my Senate colleagues and anybody in the House to uh, to try to get common sense ethics reform in Missouri. We have the, the most or at least one of the most lax uh, environments of any state in the nation, and that just doesn't speak well of our state. Okay. One last question sure. is, and we mentioned this to you before we went on the air, um, although you've only been in the Senate one year and you had uh, a term in the House, you're already being talked about as a potential candidate, perhaps as a Democratic candidate for state auditor in 2014, because the Democrats still seem to be looking for somebody to run against uh, incumbent Tom Schweik, or 2016 when there's a whole raft of statewide Mm -hmm. um, offices up. Anything you want to say? Well, I I appreciate the question, (laughs) Joe. Uh, As a first-year senator, uh, having spent much of my summer on the uh, housing development in Oakville and the transfer issue, uh, my constituents should know that I am 100 percent focused on the legislative matters in front of me and serving them. And that's that's my focus. I think we'll let no we'll, news. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> we, we, we were we were trying to get super breaking news out of you. But we'll, we'll just we'll just have to do with your thoughtful approach to issues for now. Yeah, but the Ron this. Richard note, that's news. Yes, yes. Well, that should just about do it for this week's show. We'll be back. Next week, who do we have on next week? Oh, former, we, former Speaker Steve oh, yes, Tilly, that's right. Republican. That's right. You'll enjoy that. It's good. I'm actually really pumped for that. I'm not even being sarcastic. <laughs> so, Tilly, if you're listening, get ready. We're going to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be back next week. You can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. 
You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow the senator on Twitter at. Well, I'm sure there is a link on my website, scottsifton.com. <laughs> I'm I'm not so much a Twitterer. <laughs> Very good. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long.